Hello, this is Downtown the Podcast, episode 29. Where does the time go? Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Our show airs every single weekday on WZON AM 620, WKIT HD3, streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com and on the WZON app. Two-hour show that we do every afternoon, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And then this, our opportunity to feature a couple of our favorite guests. Downtown, the podcast is presented by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Well, today we talk football, specifically about some of the pioneers of the game, a group of five owners in particular that saw the NFL through the early days and some tough times with author John Eisenberg. And we also talk with writer and critic Colin Fleming about one of the few real geniuses in the American cinema, Orson Welles, who's back more than 30 years after his death with a brand new movie, an old movie that's new again, uh, just released on Netflix and in selected theaters around the country, uh, The Other Side of the Wind. We'll talk about that with Colin, but let's get things rolling on the podcast by uh, talking NFL football. John Eisenberg is the author of a brand new book entitled The League, and it chronicles the story of five owners who were instrumental in getting the league through some of its biggest challenges during the 1930s and 40s. Here's our conversation with author John Eisenberg. What to me is so fascinating about it is uh, there are people that we know as legends of this league, uh, you know, the Hallises, the Maras, Marshall, uh, Burt Bell, uh, Art Rooney, and yet this book talks about a time when they were far from being legends, and, and some of them had some you know, fairly inauspicious beginnings. Yes, that was my goal with the sort of these guys, they're all now where we sit now they're all lions of the game right i mean they're all in the hall of fame and they're considered founding fathers but uh my goal for this book was to depict them in real time as they were in the early days of the nfl when uh the league was struggling terribly and was really a third-rate failing enterprise in many respects and franchises folded and these guys came along and started teams and they tried to beat each other on the field, but uh, off the field, they realized they had to work together as uh, in the business of pro football. And they had many, many obstacles. Um, George Hallis didn't have much money and, and uh, just one thing after the other, they went through the stock market crash, the depression, world war two, and many, many challenges uh, really took pro football to the brink. Hard as that is to believe, but these were the guys that carried it through. And really, Britt Bell, among that key group, was, was the only guy that came from a somewhat privileged upbringing. The rest of them had certainly struggled. A couple of them were, were making their money primarily as bookmakers. Yes, these were not. Uh, today's NFL owners are titans of industry, right? Uh, these guys were not titans of industry. They were uh, really, uh, uh, in many respects, uh, they're, they're son, they were sons of immigrants. Uh, in, in some respects, that's really the story of 20th century America. These were sons of immigrants with an idea. That's really all they had. And, uh, you know, it's entrepreneurship, so much of which we saw in the 20th century. And these guys, uh, no one was going to swoop in and save them. Um, you know, Burt Bell, as, as you said, it was uh, born on mainline, raised mainline Philadelphia. Now, he did have a lot of money. He blew it all at the betting window. <laughs> uh, uh, Tim Merritt was a legal bookmaker. Uh, that's what he did. He he took uh, bets on the horse races, and Art Rooney never worked a day in his life. He was a gambler, period. He 
one of the this is you can't do this anymore or maybe you can i don't know but i mean he he made his money at the racetrack when he needed money he went to the track and he was a great horse racing handicapper so uh certainly not titans of industry well, we love reading about Bert Bell. Uh, his son Upton is a, a great friend of the show, and actually is the one who uh, recommended your book, and, and I'm glad he did because it's terrific. But uh, he's such a fascinating character in this because of the family connections, and his father uh, had experience in the organization of leagues as really one of the founding members of the NCAA. Yes, uh, uh, Bert Bell came from uh, a college football background. There's no doubt he played at Penn. He coached at Penn. He coached at Temple. And his father, yes, was uh, was one of the founders, pretty much. I mean, he was a rules expert, a college football aficionado, sneered at pro football, and and, and he was not alone in the in the people that sneered at pro football in the twenties and the thirties. College football was much more popular. Uh, football in that era was deemed its place in society was really as a character building exercise for young men. That's you really go back to the roots of the game. That's what people saw it as. And so high school football, college football were very popular. But professional football, it was, it was considered like unseemly to pay someone <laughs> to play football. So that is what Bert had to fight. His father, his father believed that until he went to his grave. And so, yes, Bert, uh, ultimately, it's highly ironic that he ultimately became a pro football guy. We're talking with John Eisenberg on downtown about his terrific new book, The League, a fascinating with the Patriots in many ways owning the Boston sports landscape, even with a World Series champion in the Boston Red Sox. But it's amazing to look back in your book and realize that local sports writers uh, let George Preston Marshall know that uh, pro football had absolutely no future in Boston. <laughs> yes, Boston's role in this is, is something. Uh, there had been a team in I think one year, 1929, and it, it lasted one year. It was gone. And then George Preston Marshall comes along. He's a from Washington, D.C. He's a fairly wealthy from the laundry business, and he wanted to put a team in Washington. And the NFL, Joe Carr was the first president of the NFL, and Hallis and these guys, they all told him, nope, we, we're not abandoning Boston. We want to have a team in Boston. He really didn't want to go. And so, but he, he did, and it did not work. The Redskins were in Boston. As many of your listeners may know, I don't know, maybe they don't, but uh, they had five years there that were not successful, uh, certainly off the field. Just, he didn't get along with the sports writers. The fans didn't come. They just didn't buy it at all. And so uh, George Preston Marshall abandoned Boston and, and went to Washington and the Redskins were an enormous success almost immediately in Washington. And the Boston market sort of flopped uh, around for there were a few more franchises that came in. It really wasn't until the Patriots came along that it sort of tightened up and became uh, a, more of a pro football market. It really was a failure uh, for you know many, many years. Marshall never embraced a lot of the societal changes. Uh, part of that, as you point out in the book, is because of uh, where he was in Washington in relation to the Mason-Dixon line. But, but many people aren't aware or forget that the National Football League broke uh, the color barrier in professional sports a year before Jackie Robinson. Why doesn't the NFL get more credit for that? You know, that's a really good question. Um, uh, uh, the The... the the, the NFL had had African-American players in the 20s and the early 30s. Then Marshall comes into the league, and he's the son of Confederate officers and was very clear where he stood, and he becomes a person of influence in the league very quickly, and these other men followed his lead, I'm quite sure. 
So through 1945, uh, it was all white. Uh, the NFL, uh, you know, not a not a proud period in that league's history, and they they re they integrated or reintegrated only because the Rams moved from Cleveland to L.A. and uh, were going to play in the publicly funded Coliseum, and a black sports writer there stood up and said, "You cannot have a segregated league playing games in this publicly funded stadium." Mm. So the league reintegrated in 1946 with the Rams. And uh, uh, there were Kenny Washington was a receiver, and he had played with Jackie Robinson uh, at UCLA and knew Jackie. And uh, he was sort of at the end of his, his game there, wasn't as good. But uh, I don't know, uh, you know, the NFL, it just, it just wasn't. They'd had players before uh, African-Americans, and it just didn't have the drama. Washington was sort of near the end of his career. And also the, there was a rival league, the Ameri- All-American Football Conference. The Cleveland Browns started up that year, 1946. They also had African-American players, great ones, Marion Motley. So it wasn't just the NFL uh, that integrated at that time. So it's just a little bit less. I mean, it's great that they did it. It just is a little bit less to celebrate, I think, than what happened in baseball. Well, the whole thing might have run aground if the league, uh, with the help of Burt Bell, uh, had not found a way to avert a potentially huge scandal before the 1946 championship game. This is such a great story. Completely lost in the midst of history, and I consider myself a pro football expert, and I just, this was new to me. And that uh, on the eve of the championship game, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Giants, there was a gambling scandal. The quarterback and the fullback uh, of the Giants uh, had consorted with a gambler. They, the gambler had offered, uh, had offered them bribes to throw the game. And the 1946 championship game against the Bears in the Polo Grounds in New York. And so uh, word got out, uh, I believe it was a security detail, uh, uh, you know, had had heard about it. A security detail attached to the Giants had heard about it, and so uh, the scandal breaks like the night before the game, in the middle of the night, practically. It's like you know these guys aren't going to play, and Burt Bell just stepped in the middle of it. He had just uh, become commissioner, and Burt Bell is just a, a a huge person of influence in the history of this league. He had an unbelievable instinct for knowing what was really important. Uh, in pro football, he'd invented the draft uh, 10 years earlier before he became commissioner. And he just understood that this game, I mean, the, the, the Black Sox scandal almost brought baseball down. This could really uh, uh, bring football down. And so in the wake of that scandal, uh, all sorts of, uh, Burt Bell just led the charge, all sorts of, of, uh, uh, of rules were put in to, to, to keep the injury reports that we see three times a week. Right. Put in because that's that's why gamblers were in locker rooms. They wanted to know who was hurt. They could beat the point spread. So everything became transparent uh, at 1946, and it was Burt Bell's doing. Also, uh, very interesting to note that George Hallis, uh, in many ways, saw the future. Uh, although at first he wasn't impressed when he looked at the little black box that was TV in those early days, but he was also one of the first to maybe realize the potential of football on television. Yes, he. I, I did a chapter near the end of the book about you know, TV, TV's history in football, its role in football's rise, pro football's rise. It's just you can't state it enough. They, I mean, I, I write about the years from 1920 to the late 40s, 
there, when the league was struggling, there just wasn't much money on the table. Uh, they're just, it was either tickets, a little bit of radio revenue, and they just didn't have much money. Uh, they were just getting by. When TV came in, and it took a while for them to figure out how to use it, and they were worried that uh, if they started giving their games away for free, no one would come. They had all these issues. But uh, uh, they, Hallis was the one, that, and other ones figured it out. Uh, if you broadcast games, maybe in other cities, you could develop fans. This was before there were national TV contracts. And so Hallis suddenly, by the early 50s to mid-50s, the Bears games were being shown in 70 markets, cities around the country. They would, they would take the feed. And so suddenly he was making a lot of money. For the first time, people were really making money in pro football. And, of course, they've been making money ever since. Yeah, they've come a long way from uh, the group that started, uh, well, as George Hallis said, on the running board of a Hopmobile. Would the league have survived without these five guys who were extremely competitive but also saw the big picture and realized that they couldn't have individual success if they weren't all successful? Well, that, that's a great question, and I'm not sure it would have. There were, there were key periods. The appetite for pro football was just not strong in the United States. Uh, it was probably the fifth sport uh, in America. College uh, Baseball was a national pastime. College football was very popular. Horse racing was very popular. Boxing. Those were really, really popular sports. Pro football, people, as I said before, they didn't care to watch football as much where people were being paid to play it. So uh, there was not much appetite. And these it took these guys just believing in their product and, and continually – tinkering and working on the game, improving it, eventually separating it from the college game, making it different. The draft, of course, was a huge thing. Another one that they did, they invented George Preston Marshall. They, they, there was no postseason in, in pro football. Right. Until the first uh, 13 years, this whoever had the best record was the champ. And Marshall, he came from the theater, and he said, let's get some drama in here. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's split these teams up into two divisions and have the winners play. So a championship game like the World Series. So moves like that, I mean, they just were brilliant men, and uh, they made mistakes, many of them. But when you put them together, what their collective energies and instincts were was very formidable, and, and I, I'm not sure this league would have survived without these guys. That's John Eisenberg. His wonderful new book is called The League. When we come back, Colin Fleming talks Orson Welles with us. It's Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super-regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security Security meets strength. Five years ago, two friends got together. The mission, create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with all the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And Nice Brewing Company was born. That's G-N-E-I-S-S. They're right in the foothills of the White Mountains in Limerick, Maine. And there, Dustin and Tim combine a love of beer, science, and their German heritage to make truly unique brews. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar. And if you're in the state of Maine, look for Nice cans available all over the Pine Tree State. 
Work hard, play hard, be nice. Jay can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. I just want to know what he represents. The man is infested with disciples. I'm the apostle. One of the most talked about new films is a film that uh, was begun in the early 1970s. And more than three decades after his death, Orson Welles' final film is finally available to be viewed on Netflix and in selected theaters around the country. The movie is entitled The Other Side of the Wind. It is an absolutely remarkable motion picture. We talked about that and the companion documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, with our friend writer and critic Colin Fleming. Who would have thought that uh, more than 30 years after his death, An Orson Welles movie would be one of the most talked about films of the year. But The Other Side of the Wind, I can't can't think of enough good things to say about it. It's just so different than anything else that's out there. It's very different. I think sometimes when something like this comes along, though, people do have a tendency to want to sort of overlay the praise on it. And it's tempting, right, to want to confer upon it this notion of masterpiece status. And it's ironic, of course, that Wells, who was hated by the Hollywood system, so much so that he was basically driven out of the country and had to live as a kind of art-making radical in absentia, had to um, self-finance his films, and now this is as mainstream as you get, right? Netflix big, mighty, conglomerate (laughs) Netflix type of thing, and I can imagine Wells would have, well, beyond thinking it ironic, he probably would have been horrified by it. (laughs) And there's a degree of hypocrisy with it, that now it's this guy, oh, let's have Orson Wells, let's have Orson Wells trending, and Orson Wells' face on the side of buses, and it's a shame that it had to come 40 years later for this guy who, frankly, was better at making movies than anyone else. Well, uh, as the documentary says, they'll they'll love me when I'm dead, and uh, certainly there's there seems to be a level of appreciation for his work now that exceeds what it was certainly during that period in the '60s and '70s when he was struggling to get films made and financed. That's apocryphal. He never said that, and it's funny though that he was always well regarded, especially by people in Europe. He was always considered like the big honcho of filmmakers, people like the guard would praise films that even now haven't caught on with Wellsians like Mr. Arcaden. Um, and yeah, he was, he was definitely outside the system and he's, he's having this renaissance. And, you know, I would say to people though, that if you're on the Netflix and you're watching this, you also want to make sure to double back and check out films that even in Wells' lifetime, were overlooked. And some of them, there's a lot more than Citizen Kane. Some of them, something like uh, Falstaff or Times of Midnight, mm. you know. I don't know how you make a better film than that. I've watched it several times this week because these, the documentary and The Other Side of the Wind, sort of drove me back to that with this notion of betrayal, which was central to Wells's work. And he was betrayed by a system and People have come along now, these volunteers in service of Orson Welles, as they would call themselves, and they've put this out there. It almost reminds me, do you know who Dean Benedetti is? Benedetti is? I do not. Jazz guy who, he would basically follow around Charlie Parker, and he had the tape recorder, and he would bootleg these Charlie Parker sax solos. 
And he wouldn't really record like the rest of the band sometimes. He just wanted to get to Charlie Parker. The Other Side of the Wind and the way it was made is this composite. It sort of puts me in, in mind of, of that, where it's basically like bootlegged wells, these bits and pieces that people have stuck together that might not be the same thing as what he intended as a cohesive film. Do you put any stock in the theory, and it's floated a little bit in the documentary, that Wells never really wanted to finish Other Side of the Wind and, and had trouble wrapping up any of his films? No, I don't. I think that's the biggest fallacy there is with Orson Welles. This guy did things that were so beneath him. Granted, he was like paid a lot of money, but if you go and you look through like the films he acted in, he played Ben Franklin twice. And like not a knock on Franklin, but he would slum it unbelievably. So you can go watch him like horror films from the early 1970s. He had enough money to live off of. This was all so he could put it back into his films. Why would anyone debase themselves like that? I mean, really, go on YouTube and watch some of them. They're like Ed Wood type schlock. <laughs> out comes Orson Welles. Why would someone do something like that to fight for like three, four? five years to complete a film. Look how long he worked on Othello. When this reputation sort of came to him, it was when he was in Brazil and he was shooting a documentary. The United States government ordered him to go there and do this while it was like post-production work on Magnificent Amberson. So he's like frantically like cabling back to Hollywood about like, what are you doing to my film? And he got this reputation as someone who split town basically to indulge himself. The guy literally died while writing a script, like Elvis on his throne, but Orson <laughs> Welles at his desk, for a film that almost surely was never going to be made. This man existed and did everything humanly possible to finish films. And if he didn't finish The Other Side of the Wind, which of course he didn't, because he also was working on so many other things at the same time. That's the nature of the situation that he was put into by a corrupt, bigoted system. We're talking with Colin Fleming here on Downtown. Well, Other Side of the Wind stands apart from everything that's out there today, but uh, as you look at it uh, in the full um, complement of Wells' films, where, where does it belong in that list of great Orson Welles movies? Or does it belong there at all since he really didn't finish it? It's that notion, again, I think of like the studio outtake. Like, you have your sort of proper canon by a band, and then you have an assemblage of outtakes. And can it sort of radiate a spirit unto itself that reaches you, that makes it work almost despite itself? Yes. I think the other side of the wind does that. But it doesn't cohere like Chimes of Midnight does. It doesn't even really have Wells' full inflection, as I would think of it, like Amberson does. Amberson's is like 80% Wells, and then it's slashed. We don't really know what percentage of this is Wells. These people had to do yeoman's effort to put this together. But if you watch just the notion of a visual signature, you can watch 10 frames of this film, and you know it's Orson Wells. But you can also do that with the trial. You can do that with anything he ever did. It's that sort of collage aspect, though, where it's 35 millimeters. 
it's black and white, it's it's color, it's cinema verite, it's depth of field and precision camera work, and he's clearly the one who is orchestrating all the shots. And he's basically using Gary Graver mm. as a lackey, which I wonder, when I think about Graver's devotion to Wells, it's obviously Wells is the one who's setting up everything with the cameras and just basically saying, okay, run this, now I'm going over here. So it's a fascinating sort of kind of collage experiment, but I wouldn't say it coheres with the kind of specificity of vision that his best films do. What did you think of a Morgan Neville's Netflix companion piece, the documentary? Didn't think much of it. I thought if someone had read very much about Wells at all, there was nothing new. I didn't care for the cutesy-oochie kind of drop-ins you do with the sound where you come to the end of the line and then someone else, Wells or Aldonovich, finishes the line. I think Wells would have been aghast by that. Not that you're trying to placate a deceased artist notion of their aesthetics when you make a documentary, but I didn't think it worked very well. I thought, actually, the better documentary was the shorter one. I don't think a lot of people have seen. It's also part of this package where it's like 40 minutes long, right. and it's about what went into making this project complete as best as it could be completed, and that, where they're talking about the artificial intelligence used and everything, I thought was really interesting because it's almost like Wells was grappling with technology in a sense when he made this. Sometimes when you're a genius and it's easy for you to figure things out, as it was for Wells, it can be very liberating to struggle. Does that make sense? Because mm. you don't normally struggle. So when you have to sort of find your paces along that, that flagstone path through a work of art, and you're making a new kind of art, basically, within your medium, which is what this film is. Whatever you want to think about how effective it is, it is a completely new cinematic vocabulary. And I think Wells was, in a sense, trusting that process that it was going to take as long as it took. And they ran out of money, and then they had to do other things, and you've seen the wine commercials and all that, and... And he died in 85. He probably thought he was going to come back to it. And when he died, we think of him because he was so large. But he was only 70 years old when he right. died. I mean, look at, like, John Houston in the film. He doesn't die until, like, what, 1987? He looks like he's not going to last <laughs> another fan in the film. Like, he looks as old as you can look. That's Colin Fleming talking about Orson Welles here on Downtown, the podcast. And, uh, boy, it really is, Carrie. Uh, it's an amazing movie. And the documentary is terrific as well. If you don't know uh, some of the backstory of this film, check out Morgan Neville's great documentary, too. Yeah, it's uh, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. And it is an amazing story. The making of this film, let alone the film itself, is an amazing story. And like everything about Orson Welles, stranger than fiction, larger than life in so many ways. It's great. A lot of fun to talk about it with Colin Fleming here on Downtown the Podcast. Thanks as well to John Eisenberg, author of the terrific book on the early days of the National Football League entitled The League. And thanks to you for joining us for episode 29 of Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine.